Hey gang, it's Harold. I'm here with uh, Dana Lombardi. Dana, good to see you. Good to see you, Harold. Uh, great to have you on uh, the Harold on Games uh, video version of the podcast. Uh, Dana has a long and storied history in the hobby, so I'd like to dig into that a little bit, but um, I'll, I'll also introduce Dana as an Origins Award winner. In 1980, he won the Origins Award for the Streets of Stalingrad. And then... Um, uh, a Gamma Award for Graphics, I believe, for the third edition that came out much later and, yes. uh, and has been in, on the board of the World War I Historical Association. Um, but, but Dana, the thing I remember you from the most is I've seen you on the History Channel. Yes, that's right. I ended up, I was very lucky to be able to be a talking head that they brought in as one of their so-called experts, you know. Um, there's a little bit of a story, if you don't mind, I'll tell you what oh, happened please. on that. So at the time I was publishing Napoleon Journal magazine and I got a call from somebody in Burbank, California, who said, hey, do you know any experts on the Napoleonic Wars because you published this magazine? And I said, absolutely. I know the guy, uh, the guys in United Kingdom and you know around the country, blah, blah, blah. And they said, uh, we don't have the budget to fly people in. So you sound good. We're going to fly you down from, from Oakland, California to Burbank. We'll shoot it all in one day and you'll go home the same day. We'll buy you lunch. Okay. So I was cheap. That's why I ended up starting that. And uh, as, they, as they found out, it's like, oh, you've done video before. I said, yeah, I helped shoot video uh, on the 125th anniversary events, the reenactments of the American Civil War. And we put together videos. So I said, you need to have sound bites, short, quick, blah, 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 make it easy for them to have transitions and things. And they said, okay, you're coming back. And I ended up doing 19 History Channel um, videos, including Tales of the Gun. That's so good. So Dana, you've been in the hobby since the 1970s, right? Uh, you've, uh, you've been around and, and uh, you've seen it grow and flourish and uh, contract a little bit and then go through its uh, current heyday. Can you give us kind of a uh, a history lesson of, of sure. your experience in the hobby. I'd, I'd love to. In 1972, I was still in college <clears throat> at San Diego State, and uh, my friends and I decided to form a war game company and publish a, a magazine. We called it Conflict Magazine. It had a game in each issue, very much like strategy and tactics. Um, we made every mistake you can make with startup business, and it failed eventually. But in the meantime, I learned you know, how, about publishing, about wargaming, about uh, a business side of it, the retail side of it. And I ended up getting a job with a company that published a magazine called Model Retailer, which was, uh, it goes to hobby shops. And basically the guys there sell model trains and radio controlled airplanes and things like that. Um, they needed somebody to start writing a column about games, like why should model shops have gore games? And I said, if you want to make money and stay in business, you need to have games in your shop. That morphed into years of uh, working in the trade side of the business. And I attended, uh, they paid for me to go to war game conventions. How can you beat that? And I really, I had a great time getting to know the companies because I was the promoter for just about everybody. You know, I was not a rival publisher. In fact, Streets of Stalingrad, which you mentioned, came out through Phoenix Games in 1979 because I wasn't publishing. My little game company was gone, but I was promoting everybody I could and Gamma and the Origins Game Convention, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that went on for years and I eventually published a game uh, mer merchandising magazine, which lasted a few years. 
Uh, and then I also published game news and game trade news on my own when I branched out and started my own game company, uh, publishing company. So that was my background up through the 80s. And then I came back uh, earlier this, this century, <laughs> a whole century. Anyway, the, this century, I was able to start uh, my own little Lombardi Studios uh, you know, company. And, um, and at first I was like, well, I come up with some clever name. And the guy said, dude, you've been in this for so long. People know your name. You should really name it after you. And I said, really? And so that's why it's Lombardi Studios. <laughs> so good. Yeah, it's true, right? I mean, uh, that you're 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 an icon in the hobby. Well, well, thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, and and you know, Streets of Stalingrad is a is a stall is a, you know is a is a, uh, a standard for us. Uh, so thank you. I appreciate uh, you bringing that to us and, and and updating it. Of course, third edition is a great uh, brings some great mods. You know, um, the uh, the most interesting thing though that's going on currently is uh, your work with the great Roger McGowan uh, and it's um, the Great War card game. Mm -hmm. and, uh, just a very interesting application on the use of cards uh, in my opinion. And it's uh, a, a Kickstarter that at this point still, uh, still rolling, uh, very successful so far, but I'd like to talk a little bit about, well, a lot about the game. I'd like to hear uh, where it came from, where your idea came from, uh, the, the, the working working with Roger McGowan and um, and why Kickstarter? Okay, um, as you can tell from the picture behind me, if everybody can see it, there's the box cover that Roger did for my third edition of Streets of Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. I've known Roger since the 1970s, dating us both, uh, when he was providing artwork for my Conflict magazine. And uh, Roger is a tremendous artist. I mean, I, I can go on for a long time and tell you how wonderful he is, but everybody watching this, I'm sure Harold knows how wonderful Roger is and what artwork. I mean, he, he defines our hobby graphically. I think that, you know, because he's had his box cover art on Avalon Hill, SPI, uh, GMT, I mean, C3I Magazine. If, if you were to go back a hundred years from now and say, what was that period of wargaming like? It'll end up showing one of Roger's artwork, you know, box covers or magazine covers, you know? Agreed. So I am incredibly honored and I feel so fortunate to have Roger as a friend. And so I had this idea back in 2017 that, you know, I've never done a card game. I've had games with cards, okay? but I've never done a card game. And I thought, how difficult can this be? Boy, was I, <laughs> I was wrong. My gosh, it was, it was like unbelievable. But the nice thing is I said, you know, getting the artwork together is critical. I mean, that makes the game If people look at it and say, Ooh, I want to play that. It's because of the artwork until they play it. They won't know whether it's an interesting game or fun to play. So I went to Roger and I said, Hey, you've already done all this artwork on world war one. And just for an example, uh, you know, the Guns of August, which was a beautiful uh, painting that uh, illustration that he did came out in 1981. That's almost 40 years ago. I mean, <laughs> there have been two generations of gamers that have you know, been born and grown up since then. So Roger decided, you know what, let's reuse, repurpose that artwork and his artwork he's done in all of these other games that over the years in World War I, he agreed that they could be used for the cards, the card art, okay? So that gave me a huge jump on being able to get something started right away. 
And as a result, um, I started putting together the game and tried different rules and tried different angles of doing it. Um, but honestly, there it is. That, that's the original Guns of August. Um, and I can, I can show you uh, if you want uh, the, what's the update looks like with the uh, uh, artwork. You want me to share the screen on that? Yeah, please, please. Okay, hang on. Let me go get that real quick. Yeah, that uh, that Guns of August work, the original, uh, is iconic, right? I mean, in, in the hobby, it's just uh, such a fantastic mixture. Do I have to upload? What do I have to do to get this uh, image up there? Uh, well, you have to, let's see, you need to share. So share screen. First, you need to call it up on one of your screens. So in a Oh, got uh, it. Okay, understood. Room. All right, I'll do that right now. No worries. Yeah. No worries. This is the this is a microcosm of everything that, that we're doing <laughs> in the world, trying to figure out how to communicate better on Zoom. I think, right? Okay, it's on my screen now. Let's see if I can share it. There you go. There it is. Look at that. Ah, perfect. All right, we there? Yes. Yeah, I can see it. So that's the application of your uh, of the art to your to your game. That is correct. So basically, it's the same illustration, but obviously it has the uh, the name and the fact that it's World War One, and it has our logos on it. Um, and as you can tell, it's it's got our names on it. So I mean, there have been games out there. I'm not going to even worry about World War One and, and the Great War because everybody's used that probably dozens of times on books and games. So to stand out, it's McGowan and Lombardi's The Great War. So just in case you wanted to know which one you're playing, right? That's <laughs> anyway. Great. So I, um, just a second, let me, uh, I need to. There's a red stop sharing somewhere. Screen with you. I need to get back to my screen with you. So there's I a little red tag somewhere that says stop sharing. Oh, stop sharing. Okay. Hmm. Well, I'm not doing a good job with this. So let's not hold up things. Um, the bottom line is that when I started this, Roger is incredibly cooperative, very helpful. And he also, this is very important. He is a graphic designer, not just a graphic artist. Okay. And so the point is that he oversaw everything we were doing. Okay. The design of the cards, what they look like um, in terms of the components, what they look like. He created the play mat. So Roger was very active and very much a part of this. I didn't just grab a bunch of old pictures, you know, and throw them on a bunch of cards. Okay. That, that just wouldn't, wasn't going to work. In fact, now I'll, I'm going to bring up the one that is the, um, the, the sample card. Okay. Okay. Good. And then you, everyone can take a look at what that's going to look like. Here we go. Share screen. There it is. Okay. Can you see it? I can see it. Yes, very nice. Okay. All right. That's a sample card. It's the ace. That's Baron von Richthofen, um, one of probably the most famous ace of World War One. And uh, as you can tell, a couple of things. I have a sense of humor with this stuff, and I wanted to share that. So fighter pilots only really started in World War One. okay? And as soon as they started shooting each other down, the, the term ace was used by the French first, to describe somebody who knocked down at least five or more aircraft. That eventually became the most famous term for a, an ace, a pilot who shot down aircraft. Even today we use that. So guess what? The ace card 
is an ace, literally. So, uh, and, and it can show you the king and the queen and all that other stuff because they all have a historical basis. But you can see that it's also a, a bunch of playing cards, which means that you could play this just like solitaire poker, whatever you want to do with friends who don't want to play a war game, but they might want to play, you know, traditional card game, go fish or whatever. Uh, and they can use these cards for that. And therefore somebody gets sort of sucked into war gaming without realizing it. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I'm playing a war game. Anyway, so you've got the ace, you got the suit, and this one's this one is clubs, but there's obviously hearts, diamonds, and spades. Um, and then uh, it tells you you see the picture of the of the person, the copyright of Roger on there. The nationality, of course, is Germany or Central Powers, which uh, the gray card. You've got the fact that it's an aviation card because you see the little airplane. Uh, that X means it cancels other card. And you can see at the bottom of the card, it says it cancels any one aviation card, meaning when you play that, you can knock down any one of your opponent's cards. And then over here in the bottom left corner, battle point value, this is how you add up the points at the end of a, a, a turn or a round, uh, and you add them all up for the game, and that determines who won, okay? Not that complicated, okay? And that's what I wanted to do. I mean, a lot of people are sitting there going, is this the same guy that did Streets of Stalingrad? It's like... I mean, you could take three hours playing one turn of Streets of Stalingrad. Of and here we are, we've got a game that, and that's what I did. I deliberately wanted to have a game that was two things. One, uh, if people have been to Consum World, they know that the monster games, it's also monster game convention, and people are out there playing these games all week, not just a weekend, but like for, you know, 10 days. But there's always dead time and there's time where it's, oh, I got to sit here and the other guys are going to take their turn. It'll be three hours before I can play again. And so they'll play, um, you know, some kind of filler game in, in between. And so I wanted one to have people have something that they could play as a filler game in between waiting for people to arrive, waiting for people to play uh, their turn. Uh, and the other thing is I also wanted something simple that you could introduce people to. I remember the old Avalon Hill games, Africa Corps, Battle of the Bulge, Waterloo. I mean, they had like four pages of rules. That's it, right? And now today you've got books, 48 page books to read. Oh, I'll, I'll read the rules and we'll play this game in like six weeks. It's like, no, I don't think so. You know, it's like, we need to have at least something that would be introductory. And I thought, you know what? Something like this might be attractive to somebody who would never play games of this type of historical games right and in fact the play testing had several people who brought their wives or girlfriends in or young people and they said oh this is easy that's i succeeded in what i wanted to accomplish it looks beautiful because of roger's artwork uh and and that's what we were trying to achieve um but i did mention and if you you don't mind me going into it Please. This was one of the hardest designs I've ever done. It makes Streets of Stalingrad look like, you know, oh, an afternoon session of designing. And everybody's going to sit there. How could that possibly be? Okay. Let me, let me bring up a couple of uh, sample cards, okay? Good. I'm going to do that right now, and then you can put them on the screen. Here we go. I'm going to share this one. There we go. I'll share this. Um, where are you? Well, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Oh, there it is. There's Zoom meeting. Okay. Sorry about that. That's okay, all right. Go. <coughs> okay. Is there that up is. there now? Yep. See it. Okay. 
So you can see that um, uh, the background and the card with the heavy machine gun are Roger's work, okay? But you also see that we also have included historical photographs mm -hmm. that have been colorized and they're part of it also. Anyway, here's, here's where the complication came in. You can see that each card has icons on it, like that X for the cancel, it cancels a card, or plus it can be added to some other card. Um, and so the idea is, you know, you can add the machine guns to trenches, uh, you can add it to other infantry units, you can add the tank to infantry. This is where the complication came in. Because the cards have so many different ways to be added or work with other cards or against them, all that had to be tested. And then we'd find out, oops, this card is too strong. Oops, this card is not doing what it did historically. And it took literally months of playtesting to fine tune this. So the good news is there's only one sheet of rules, front and back, very simple. And because if you notice at the bottom of these cards, that's where all the rules are, okay? Yeah. The icons, that's where all the rules are. All you have to do is look at the card and do what it says or use the icon. And that way you can play the game quickly and easily, all right? No need for 48 pages of rules. But because all the rules are on the bottom of the cards, guess what? Those better work, right? Yeah. So we had to keep testing those and that's what took time. So. I'm hoping this is a success. It looks like the Kickstarter is going to make it, um, in which case it's another one of my three-year overnight successes, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Well, uh, you know, I think that you also invest a career in, uh, in gathering the knowledge and ability uh, to, to execute on these sorts of things. So I think we all benefit from that. After you. you put, I mean, you know, with 70, what did you say? 72, 1972, I started my first company. I've been designing games, you know, just because I liked it before that. But uh, in 72, uh, when I was nine, when I was nine, I was 22 years old in 1972. And I started my first game company, Simulations Design Corporation in San Diego. Um, so yes, I've been doing it since then. And the only thing I can say in my favor is, guess what? I have been able to learn as much as I can and not repeat mistakes. I always make new mistakes, but I don't repeat them, fortunately. So Dana, you, you said there was a mat involved in play. Um, yeah. And, and how, does, uh, how, do, how does the mat work? And, and how, what would, a, what would a, a hand or a turn, just can you get, verbally give me a feel for how the game plays? Absolutely. Let me uh, let me pull up. Uh, there are two mats. I'm going to pull up one of them here in just a second. Okay. Give me a moment. Is this one of them here? Let me see. Uh, actually, though, that, no. Oh, yeah. That's the that is the one that Roger did. That's the one that Roger did. Okay. Okay. So, um, oops. There we go. Yes, that's one that uh, we have, and I'll show you the other one. Here we go. Okay. There it is. I'm going to share. We're getting good at this, Dana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, All five right. more minutes and it'll be a well-oiled machine. <laughs> That's right. Okay. All right. There's the other mat. Okay. What a One great, mat what that a great Roger photo. did is where you place the decks of cards and where you have the discards and the captured cards. Okay. And it's also where you put the, the turn card that shows who's the defender this turn and also where you have the die that keeps track of which turn it is. Then there's a separate mat, which I just put up, 
uh, which you just, uh, I hope I shared. Anyway, it shows yes. a bunch of Russians in a trench. Notice that they're all jammed together, okay? And they're all exposed, which means that their heads are gonna get blown off. So this is not a well-made trench, okay? And if just one artillery round lands in it, I'm, I'm afraid that most of these guys are gone, okay? Right. So uh, just because they started trench warfare didn't mean that they knew how to do it properly, all right? And then along the one uh, top edge, you can see those are the turns and that you have a marker that you can keep track of who won that turn, okay? And then the current point uh, uh, battle points that people have are uh, shown, central powers versus the allies. And that way you know who's winning, which means that even if in, you know the one side's winning like crazy up to turn six, all of a sudden it can turn around and you can win the game in the last couple of turns, okay? So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, some games, unfortunately, get to the point where if somebody gets way ahead, that's it. They, they've won. And this is Euro games, not just war games I'm talking about. And so I tried to do something where the game was always going to be in doubt up to the last couple of turns. And I think I was able to accomplish that. But again, it took lots of playtesting to make sure that was going to work. So the, the competition is turn by turn then. Yes, that is correct. Every and a turn, turn is a combination of cards. Uh, yeah, let me uh, let me grab. Uh, let me see if I can find some of my. I'll knock this off for you, and you can put something else up there. Okay. Show some of the leader cards. Look, the just fantastic. The art is unbelievable. Oh, thank you so much. Again, I'm not going to take credit for it. Guess who? That's Roger, okay? <laughs> I mean, yes, there are other people involved, and I will mention them very quickly because they deserve it. Please. That Mark Schumann, who's been in this game business for a long time as a graphic artist, mm -hmm. was the, the person who designed the frame for the cards. Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant, okay? And then Dan Zillion is the guy who took it over when Mark was not able to continue. And Dan has done enormous work on colorizing uh, the historical photos and tweaking the icons and things like that. Anyway, so those two guys are part of a team and that's what I wanted to emphasize. I keep talking about playtesting. Dana did not sit here and do all the playtesting. That's just physically impossible, right? And all of these people who are gonna be given credit in, in the final you know, sheet inside the, the game, um, they made this game. I came up with the idea, I tweaked it, but the bottom line is without all these other people, without Roger, without Dan, without Mark, without the playtesters, there is no game. It right. can't be, okay? I want everyone to understand that. If you go back and show those cards for just a second, do you mind? Yeah, sure, yeah. Okay, these are all jacks, okay? I believe that uh, you, you were showing. Okay, yes. yeah, they're all jacks, as, you'll, as you can see. All right, and, and no, that does not mean they're jackasses, okay? Even <laughs> though historically, a lot of the soldiers said they were lions led by donkeys. These are the donkeys, okay? All right. right. I didn't choose Jack. Okay, I did. I chose the Jack for the jackass, okay? But <laughs> the bottom line is that you've got a hand of nine cards, okay? They're not all Jacks or Aces or whatever. They're a mix. And what happens is you, you pull these out of the draw decks, and they tell you what you've got to work with, okay? Um one of the thing you showed, there was a, uh, a card. You notice all the cards here, the infantry. Uh, in fact, let's stop there just for a second. You see they're queens. That's because infantry has been called the queen of battle since ancient times. Okay? That's true. Yeah. 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 I know. I know. It's, it, I'm being goofy, but that's all right. It's my game. I get to be goofy. Absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> and, and the king card, wait for it. Guess what? King of battle, right? What's the king of battle? Artillery. It's, 
artillery. Right. Okay. All right. So we got that out of the way. Love it. Love it. You know, so we had a little bit of humor, a little bit of fun, a little bit of history and trying to make the history work. If you, in showing what we've got here with on the far right, we've got basically an aerial reconnaissance card. And then the other ones are, are artillery cards, right? Well, notice that you can add aerial reconnaissance to artillery. And that is a force multiplier because that's what happened historically mm -hmm. through a combination of literally guys viewing from the air what, what they could see and also photographs that they would rush back to their airfield and they could develop that incredibly quickly. Um, surprisingly, I mean, we talk about that era being primitive technologically. It was, yes, compared to today, but they knew what they were doing and those photographs helped identify targets for the artillery and made them more effective. So you can add aerial reconnaissance to artillery and therefore have a historically correct card play. Anyway, so the bottom line is each guy's got nine cards. The defender puts something down first, whatever he wants to put down. Um, and I wanna just mention that, um, let me show you one last card just so everybody understands this. Because a lot of people are going to say, Gina, this sounds so interesting. Uh, isn't World War I about trenches? It's like, where did those go? It's like, okay. So I'm going to show you a card that's out all the time. Okay, here we go. I'm going to share. There it is. Okay. Yes, I can see, can you it. see it. Okay. So you can see that there are trenches. Those are early German trenches in 1915. And then the one of the British uh, in the Somme area, the Flanders area, that's 1917. You can tell these are really getting to be more sophisticated. Here's the bottom line. In the first month of the war on the East Front, Western Front, Eastern Front, there were no trenches. It was all maneuver. But because of the massive casualties caused by the firepower of not just rapid fire rifles that you could quickly fire five rounds or six rounds off, uh, there were machine guns in massive quantities that never existed before. They had machine guns before this, but never in this kind of quantity. And then the artillery, huge amount of fast firing artillery. So the result was huge casualties and everybody started digging September on every front, everyone was trying to dig in and prevent massive losses, okay? Um, these cards show those, those trenches. So we didn't have to do special cards because literally you'd have to put out trenches every turn. And I didn't want someone's hand being filled up with trenches when they're already existing everywhere, okay? Right. So anyway, that's up, that's your trenches. The, here's the key. It's not whether there are trenches because there are trenches. It's like, what do you have to support this trench? Yeah. Do you have defense in depth? Do you have reinforced trenches? They were, they were doing concrete pillboxes in places eventually, okay? Do you have enough infantry? There's always gonna be infantry. There's always gonna be machine guns, but do you have enough? Do you have support troops? Do you have some artillery that is not only able to support them, but is available when you need it, okay? That's what your hand of cards represents. Do you have what you need to attack and capture a line of trenches or defend it and counterattack? Okay. That's how the game is played back and forth, back and forth. And the trenches are there. You can see them, but you don't have to have them in your hand. And as I said, you add up your points of the, when, when somebody wins a hand, I win, 
I capture your cards, okay? And mm -hmm. I get those points and mine are discarded back into my, you know, draw deck, okay? Mm -hmm. So we keep doing that until the end when either by the scenario, which is specific to what you have to achieve, or the general game, which is, okay, now add up your points. And whoever it is, whoever has the most points, guess what? It's not just, I have one more point than you, okay? There are four levels of victory. There are a lot of times when trenches were captured and your troops did a great job, but you had so many losses that, you know, it was a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. So I could beat you by a few points and I'd have a moral victory, okay? But it's not much of a victory. I can have a tactical victory, which is a little bit better. I have more points than you, a little bit more, or I have a lot more than you, and that's an operational victory where I capture a significant portion of the front. To have a strategic victory, I really have to have won a lot of hands and captured a lot of cards. Let's just say the odds of that are slim to nil, okay? It's there as a victory condition, but it didn't happen in World War I until the very end in 1918, okay? So you got to understand that it's always going to be a frustration to reach the higher levels of victory conditions because that's what it was historically. Fair enough. So Dana, what kind of play times have you seen with your play testers? People who haven't ever played this before can start playing it. Um, I would say within 10, 15 minutes, because like I said, most of the rules are right there on the cards and you can just read them. You don't have to memorize all the cards, just use the ones you've got and look at them and say, do what this says. Um, the time to play is realistically 10 turns is probably going to take about an hour to 90 minutes. Okay. But there are people who have played this and we even have a solitaire version that we've come up with in the Kickstarter. Yeah. People were like, please, please, we need solitaire. And I'm sitting there going, duh, I, I play solitaire all the time. Why didn't I do this from the beginning? Anyway, we did, we're going to have solitaire. We're going to have multiplayer team type games where you have two on two, on two babe, one on one, twos, pairs, of people you know that basically can go at a convention or wherever they want to do it or in a schoolroom um and the solitaire you can do it on your own where you're playing against a set defense you don't know what it is or a set attack again all you know is they have all these possibilities and you have to figure out how can i prepare myself best and use the cards i've got against a live opponent or the artificial intelligence that you know we have for the solitaire uh i would say allow about an hour on average once you know the game but 90 minutes to two hours if you have never played it before good good well dana that's an outstanding summary of the game and uh and what's going on with kickstarter I, I, one, one last question is why did you decide to to i mean you've published games before you know the business better than anybody why the kickstarter delivery you know, it's a really good question. I grew up in the pre-Kickstarter age where the traditional way of doing this was to go to conventions and then all of a sudden hobby shops and my God, de dedicated game stores came into existence. That was my business. And I, I was a hardcore supporter of what was called the traditional uh, distribution system where you go through distributors, you go to retail stores, you support them completely and you didn't try to sell direct to the customer. Right. You didn't do that. That all disappeared. I'm sorry to say it just went away. And if you're a small game company, um, as much as I'd love to support distributors and I want to support retailers always, um, you can't reach them. 
I mean, as a, as a one game company, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I have on the Kickstarter a package that gives the retailers a special discount so they can actually sell this game to their, their uh, customers and make something on it. But if you know, if you've gone into a book uh, game store, like bookstores, it's like there are so many books, so many games on the shelves. It's just physically impossible to get a piece of that, that shelf space anymore. Kickstarter also allows you to do something else. In the past, we had to gamble. Streets of Stalingrad, I, I did a pre, pre-sell, like the P500 that GMT does, right? So Kickstarter is basically the evolution from P500 to basically crowdfunding. In other words, financing from people who say, I like this idea. I love this idea for a card game. I'll help you get it started. We don't make anything. Trust me. If I did, I'd be retired a long time ago. Okay. (laughs) But Kickstarter raises the money needed to publish it. All right. That's it. You know, of course, I got to pay the, the other artists. You know, Roger and I are the, the two guys that are getting, you know, the we'll, we'll retire on the thousands of billions of dollars we get off of this. But I have to pay the guys like Mark and Dan and all the people who are doing a lot of work on this. And so it's not just physically printing a game and shipping it, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other th- factors involved, including, guess what? We had to pay for p- advertising to get people to go to Kickstarter. All that money has to come back, you know, in order to otherwise I'll, this would be the worst thing in the world business wise is that, yes, I raised the money on Kickstarter. It only cost me $40,000 to get 30. You know, it's like, don't want to do that. All right. So uh, I know that people are looking here going $18,000. It says, yes, it's $18,000. I'm sorry. I'm not rich and I can't just give these away. But the the bottom line is that um, we have to do this. I appreciate the support and the pledges. I really, honestly, these guys are wonderful. And I think that a lot of it is because both Roger and I have been able to build up a fan base over the years. And I appreciate that a lot. I love the fans. And if I don't interact with them as much as I'd like to, this is my opportunity to say to them, thank you all for your support over the years. And thank you, Harold, for giving me me this opportunity. You're, you're very kind to say that, Dana. I'm excited for both of you and, and uh, everybody else associated with the project. I think it's a cool, uh, a cool idea, and, uh, and, and it's clearly going to do well on Kickstarter. So uh, if people want to, uh, want to participate in the Kickstarter, um, you know, all, all I did was search for uh, The Great War and then Dana Lombardi and, uh, and Kickstarter, and mm-hmm. uh, I, got, I got the Kickstarter, so it's very easy to find. Yes. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Dana, thanks for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking with you and, uh, and I, I, I wish you the best of luck with the Kickstarter and, and look forward to more similar projects. Thank you, Harold. I really appreciate this. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye.